through the book of Romans, and we come this morning to Romans 8, verses 18 to 22. And before I read, I ask if you'd join me as we go to God in prayer and ask for the Spirit's anointing in his word this morning. Let's pray together. Lord God, we do praise you for the gift of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit that was poured out at Pentecost. The Holy Spirit that moves within believers the Holy Spirit that moves the church and advances the kingdom, the Holy Spirit that constantly points to and teaches and guides us into the truths of Jesus Christ. And I pray this, now this morning, O Lord, that the same Holy Spirit that was poured out at Pentecost would be poured into our hearts as we come to your word this morning, that you would enlighten us, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. The same Spirit who gave breath and life to these words of Scripture would now plant them deep in our hearts that they might bear fruit of transformation for our good and for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're able, I invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word, Romans chapter 8, verses 18 to 22. So before I read, I'm just going to make a comment on verse 18, because I'm not really going to address it in the message. Um, so the, the NIV, I, I, I don't love the way the NIV translates this verse. The NIV says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The difficulty is that it reads like Paul talks in verse 18 about our sufferings, and then the next four verses, 19 to 22, he's talking all about the suffering of creation. So there's a little bit of a disconnect there. And then we get uh, to the next section, and he, then he talks about our suffering again. And so um, I was wrestling over that a little bit, and I, I came, uh, and when I went to the Greek, I found that that word are is not there. And so I think a better translation, which is the way the ESV and many other translations actually translate it, is... I consider that the sufferings of this present age are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. And from that, sort of it's a general blanket statement about suffering, the sufferings of this present age, which would include our suffering, but also includes the sufferings of creation. And it just flows more naturally than into what Paul says next in verse 19. So here we go. I'm going to uh, change it to what, how the ESV says, has verse 18. I consider that the sufferings of this present age are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. You may be seated. One of, the, uh, one of the saddest experiences of my life uh, took place a little over 10 years ago. 
uh, on a duck hunting trip in North Dakota. Some of you who were, who, who, uh, were around at that time know uh, what happened, um, and, but you'll, you'll hear it again. So um, our dog, Bo, uh, was a young lab, uh, was nine years old and had been declining in health at this, at this point uh, uh, when I was taking this, this uh, trip to North Dakota. This, this picture is not from North Dakota. It's from uh, shortly before the trip uh, on a uh, hunt in Green Bay. So, uh, but, so I took him on this, this trip to North Dakota. I thought about not taking him because he was really not doing well. He clearly was declining, but he just, he would not, not go. He just, that was the thing he loved to do more than anything. And he would be, he was just, I could tell he would be crushed to be left behind. So I, I took him and as the trip went on, his condition began to plummet and his whole body was at times trembling in weakness and in pain. And then on the very last hunt of the trip, it was an icy and cold morning. So I decided I'm going to just leave him in the truck. I'm not going to, you know, bring him out in these conditions. But again, he would have none of it. He was whining and barking and, and just begging to, to come. So I, I, uh, I, I carried him out, I lifted him out of the truck, and I carried him out to the slough where we were hunting. And I had him lay down beside me while we, while we did our hunt. And we only shot one duck that morning, and that one lone duck that we shot, uh, Bo just couldn't contain himself, and he, he not, couldn't not do what he was made to do, so he went out uh, and mustered all of his strength to break through the ice and to trudge through the mud to retrieve that duck. And when he got to it, it was kind of out in the middle of the marsh, when he got to it, he picked it up, and then he, he was so weak that he couldn't get back. He just froze, and he was just standing there trembling middle of the marsh and so I broke through the ice and I walked out there and I picked him up with the duck still in his mouth and I brought him back to shore and as it turns out that was the last retrieve that he would ever make it was about his 550th duck that he had retrieved he died later that night and we buried him in our yard the next day that memory of Bo captures at least to some degree what, what Paul is getting at in our text this morning. There is a, a deep brokenness in creation. Things are not as they should be. All of creation is laced with suffering, aching and groaning to be put right again. So the, the over, just to give you sort of an orientation to this text this morning, the overarching theme of this next section in Romans is, is suffering and glory. It was kind of introduced, as, as Pastor Ben mentioned last week from verse 17, that kind of introduced this, this overarching theme of suffering and glory. And, and Paul writes of this theme of suffering and glory in really two different but related categories. So he writes first about suffering and glory as it relates to creation which is the focus of our text this morning. And then he will write, secondly, about suffering and glory as it relates to believers, which we will look at next week. And so the focus of our message this morning, then, is on suffering and glory as it relates uh, to creation. And before we go any farther, we really should clarify what, what Paul means by creation in these verses, because he doesn't mean creation in the broadest sense of the term. He doesn't mean the, the whole scope of all created things. He's not talking about demons and, and angels. He's not talking about humanity, because there's a distinction in this text between 
creation as he as Paul uses it and humanity. And so uh, what, what Paul means when he speaks of creation in these verses is he's talking specifically about the subhuman domain, the, the natural world, you know, plants and, and animals, rivers and streams, mountains and hills, rocks and plains. You, you, you get the idea. This is what Paul means by creation. So that's the, the picture that we have to have in mind as we go through the text this morning. And in our text, Paul makes really three main statements about, crea- about creation. So this is, if you like, a roadmap of where we're going. This is where we're going. Three main statements that Paul makes about creation. And these three statements relate to its past, its present, and its future. And so we begin with a statement about the past. Paul says in verse 20 that creation was subjected, was subjected to frustration. And, and the word frustration is a translation of the Greek word matayotes, and its basic meaning is, is emptiness or, or futility or uselessness, purposelessness. The idea here is that creation is unable to fulfill its purpose. It, it cannot be all that it was meant to be. It falls short of, of, of reaching its full potential. And this explains all of the suffering and all of the brokenness in creation. It has been subjected to frustration and futility. And Paul says that it has been subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. And, and who, is the, who is the one who subjected it to frustration? That is God. So this is a reference to God and the judgment that God placed upon creation as a result of human sin. When Adam and Eve sinned, they they didn't only unleash God's judgment against themselves and the rest of humanity, they unleashed God's judgment against creation. We read about that in Genesis chapter 3 in the account of the fall. As a result of human sin, God says to Adam in Genesis 3 verses 17 to 18, he says, curse the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. Now, this is part of God's judgment against Adam, against humanity, a painful consequence that humanity has to endure because of human sin. But notice how creation is wrapped up in this judgment, sort of caught in the crossfire of God's judgment. The the ground that was made to be beautiful and abundant is now cursed. The land that was meant to be fertile and fruitful is now plagued by thistles and thorns. All of creation was plunged into this condition of futility and brokenness and suffering on on the coattails of human sin. And so when humanity fell into sin, we brought all of creation down with us, is what Paul is saying. So as a result of human sin, all of creation has been subjected to frustration and futility and and suffering. And and so there is brokenness all around. And we see evidence of this everywhere, don't we? You don't have to look very far to see that creation is, is, is not what it was meant to be. Creation is distorted creation is broken creation is its utility and agony a butterfly with crumpled wings a dying forest an eagle sitting alone at a zoo with a 
missing wing, unable, so it's unable to fly and soar as, as it was made to fly and soar. A landscape torn apart by a hurricane, a squirrel with no front legs. I know, I had to put that cute one in there. A carcass rotting on a hillside, not so cute. And then a coastal area littered with waste and debris. An animal being to the death instead of living in harmony. These are all sampling of glimmers of the truth that creation is not what it was meant to be. That it is not reaching the potential for which it was made. All of this is the product of, of what has happened in the past. It has been subjected to frustration as a result of human sin. God's judgment as a result of human sin. Which brings us then to Paul's statement about creation in the present. And that is that creation is in a state of groaning. So Paul says in verse 22, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Now, as a man, and, and if you're a fellow man, and especially a husband and a father, you can appreciate this. I've never experienced, and you've never experienced, the pains of childbirth. But as a husband and a father, I've witnessed it. And it, let me, it was one of the most horrifying and traumatic things I have ever seen. I, I, I don't think I have ever been more thankful to be a man than when I saw Lori going through the agony of giving birth. I, I, I fell to my knees and I praised God for making me who I am. And this is how Paul describes the present state of creation. All of creation is in agony, groaning as in the pains of childbirth, laced with suffering, longing for the arrival of something beautiful. In the words of Tennyson, nature is red in tooth and claw, biting and bitten, pitted and scarred, clawing its way to survival in a frayed and broken land. Paul adds to the imagery of the present state of creation in verse 21, where he describes creation as being in bondage to decay. And the word decay is a translation of the Greek word thora, which means ruin or corruption, and it carries with it the implication of, of disintegration and decay. And so the idea is that, is that creation is in, is in this state of degeneration, right? That, that things just, just naturally, as a result of the fall, are sort of declining. And so stars burn out, and, and lakes fill in and, and die and, and turn back to dry land, and trees rot, and, and, and youthful puppies that are so cute and full of energy turn into decrepit old dogs that die. All things decline and decay. The universe is, is running down. Creation is out of joint. And this is precisely what I felt when I carried our dog, Bo, out of the marsh that morning in North Dakota and lowered his body in a grave the next day. The inescapable agony of a creation that's in bondage to decay. The ache for, for vigor and vitality in the face of disintegration and death. So all of creation is groaning as in the pains of childbirth, aching and agonizing in its bondage to decay. But there, there's, something, there's something really beautiful. So it, it, as, as awful as that there's something really beautiful about it as well. And the beautiful thing is about the pains of childbirth is that, is that it's pain with a purpose. It's, it's not meaningless pain. It's not just pain that, it, it's pain that is, that, is, that is accomplishing something. 
It's pain that carries with it the expectation of something so beautiful that it, in fact, overshadows the pain. It's always amazing to me to see, to see pictures and to experience with, with Lori, but to see pictures of, of new moms immediately after their babies are born. You know, pictures and these, these, these new moms are, are, are glowing and, and they're, they're radiant and, and they're smiling. Like how in the world can they be smiling? You know, it's astounding to me that they, they could be smiling after their bodies have been, been ripped through the, the process of childbirth. And it's like going through torture for 10 hours and then the moment it's over, it's like they've forgotten all about it and everything is just great. Well, why is that? It can only be because the joy of the newborn child is so great that it overshadows the pain of delivery. And that's what Paul says about creation that the groaning of childbirth will give way to something so beautiful that it far outweighs the pain. And so we see this in Paul's statement about the future. He says that the birth pains of creation will end in glory. He says in verses 20 to 21, for the creation was subjected to frustration in hope. There's the, there's the the, the purpose, there's the, the thing that changes completely the landscape of the suffering in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from it. There's the future from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. And so the, the sufferings and the agonies of creation are not the final word, that they are but the birth pains to a future glory. And of course, the glory that Paul writes about here is an eschatological glory. It is the glory of shalom regained, the, the glory of the Garden of Eden magnified and perfected. It is, it is all of creation in perfect harmony with God and humanity and, and the rest of creation. That's, that's the glory that Paul is talking about. It's the glory of the, the new heavens and the new earth when the curse has finally been lifted and God's redemption plan is now fully realized. We see glimmers of this glory throughout the Old Testament. God said through the prophet Isaiah, he said, see, I will create new heavens and a new earth. And then he describes what the, these new heavens and new earth will look like. He says, the, lo the wolf will live with the lamb and the leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together and a little child will lead them. So all of the, these animals, these, these, these parts of creation that had been in, in struggle with each other and in, in conflict and in opposition and, and, and red in tooth and claw, now living together in perfect harmony. The cow will feed with the bear and the lion will eat straw like the ox. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the water cover the sea. The suffering of creation will give way to glory. And, and one of the profound truths of Paul's teaching on creation is that this glory is, is inextricably tied to our redemption as believers. That, that's, I think, a really an important piece of, of, of theology that we often overlook, that just as creation was dragged down into suffering and decay on the coattails of human sin, so creation will be brought into glory on the coattails of our redemption. This is the point that Paul makes in verse 19. He says, For the creation waits in eager expectation. And then that word eager expectation refers, refers to sort of craning the neck, standing on tiptoes, looking towards the horizon in expectation of what is to come. So the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. 
the children of God being revealed as a reference to the end of the age when the sheep are separated from the goats and those who are truly children of God in Christ are revealed. It is a reference to the time when, when our redemption as believers is fully realized. And so why is creation waiting for this day when the children of God will be revealed? Because creation has a, a vested interest in that day because creation is linked to our destiny. The revealing of the children of God is the climactic moment of the age to come. And those whom God has chosen and adopted as his children will be revealed and will participate fully in his glory. And on that day, not before that day, but when that day arrives, on that day, all of creation will enter into a state of glory as well. That is why creation is waiting in eager expectation for our redemption to be complete. Because when our redemption is complete, they get to enter into glory. And so again, just as creation rode into brokenness on the coattails of human sin, so creation will ride into glory on the coattails of human redemption. And Paul says that all of creation is poised, standing on tiptoes, waiting for the redemption of believers to be fully realized, because on that day, creation will be liberated from its bondage to decay into glory. Sometimes when we uh, go places, either to a, a field or a, a park or little errands around town, we'll, we'll have our dog, our dog Ruby uh, ride in the, in the bed of the truck, which is one of her favorite things to do. And we'll tell her to, to stay in the bed of the truck and, until we get back from wherever it is that we're going. So if we're going into a store or something to, little, to grab groceries or whatever it may be, we'll tell, tell her to stay. Almost always, unless we have been gone too long and she falls asleep, almost always uh, we will come back to see Ruby with the exact same expression on her face. Her ears are perked and her, and her neck is straining across the bed of the truck and she is, is practically standing on tiptoes looking out from wherever the last place that she saw is eagerly expecting us to return. And Paul says this is what creation is doing. Standing on its tiptoes, straining its neck, waiting in eager expectation for Christ to return. Because when Christ returns, the climatic moment of our redemption as believers will arrive, and with it will come the new heavens and the new earth and the liberation of all of creation into glory. And what a glory that will be. Paul says it will be a glory so breathtaking and so beautiful so weighty, so full of substance that the of this present age won't even register on the scale of comparison. That's what he's saying in verse 18. He says, I consider that the sufferings of this present age the glory that will be revealed in us. And that expression not worth comparing comes from the Greek word axios, which in verbal form means to, to, to drive or to cause to move. And when it's used figuratively as it is here, it has a sense of something that's heavy enough to tip the scales. So it has this, this sort of this, uh, this balance, this, the, this balance scale imagery. Uh, so what Paul is saying is that if you, if, you put the future, if, you, if you put the future glory that will characterize all of creation on one side of the scale, and if you put the sum total of all of the sufferings of this present age on the other side of the scale, the sufferings won't even register. It'll be, they, they, the sum total of all those sufferings will be like dust on the scale. 
And so how, how brilliant and, and how weighty must that glory be if it makes all of the sufferings of this present age weightless by comparison? We see the same idea in 2 Corinthians 4 where Paul says that our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. And so the story of creation, as Paul presents it here, is that it has been in the past subjected to frustration and suffering by, by God as a result of human sin. It is in the present, presently groaning as in the pains of childbirth, groaning under its bondage to decay. But then there's this future. The birth pains will give way to a future promised glory that is so beautiful and so astoundingly glorious that it far outweighs the pain. Now, as we ponder Paul's theology on suffering and glory in creation from the text, I want to leave us this morning very briefly with just five brief statements of application so I won't really develop these much. I'll just give them to you. Number one. So five statements of application from this text. This text gives us, number one, a comprehensive view of sin. So, so human sin is not only a human problem, but the consequences of our sin extend beyond humanity into all of creation. The, the result of, of sin is, is devastation not only for, for us, but for plants and, and animals and the rest of creation, over which we were made to rule with benevolence and care. Second, this text gives us a broad view of redemption. So redemption, I think often we, we don't... We don't we have too, too narrow or too small a view of redemption. So re redemption in Christ is not just a matter of, of, of saving human souls. Re redemption is not just a matter of, of gathering human souls into heaven. That's one small piece of redemption. It's an important one, but it's just one piece of it. Redemption in Christ is cosmic in scope. It extends beyond believers to all of creation. As Paul said to the Colossians, the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, and in him all things hold together. For God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in Christ. And through him, Paul says, to reconcile to himself not only believers, but all things. By making peace through his blood shed on the cross. The redemption that God is accomplishing in Christ is a cosmic redemption, a redemption that includes all of creation. And third, related to the second, this text that also gives us an exalted view of the lordship of Christ. If the redemption that he accomplishes is in fact a cosmic redemption, then the lordship exercises is also a cosmic lordship. As Paul said to the Philippians, God exalted Christ to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at his name every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ, and here's the name that is above every name, the title above every name, that Jesus Christ is Lord Adonai, to the glory of God the Father. And so we are right to sing in the words of that Twilight Paris song, you are Lord of creation and Lord of my life, Lord of the land and the sea. You are Lord of the heavens before there was time and Lord of all lords you will be. Fourth, this text gives us a high view of creation. 
So nature is not a commodity to be exploited. It is the handiwork of God waiting to be redeemed. And so a a biblical theology of humans in relationship with creation is a theology of creation care. All, All of creation is groaning, aching for its participation in glory, waiting for the full realization of its potential. God is deeply concerned about creation and has ordained that creation share in his glory. And you can see those, those glimpses of God's concern for creation all throughout the biblical story. And this alone is reason enough to care for it and to hold it in high regard. And so it is fitting and right for us to strive for, for things like, for example, sustainable farming practices and to care about soil preservation and to, to plant trees and to make environmental friendly decisions and to pursue animal care. These are the kinds of things that, that, we, that, that, is, that, that, that we, biblically speaking, ought to be doing. Like res- rescuing ducklings from a drainage pit in the churchyard, as a few of you, including Lori, did a couple weeks ago during the church work day. And one of them now has a name and traveled with us on our vacation (laughs) and is growing and thriving under our care, having been liberated from its bondage pit to the glory of a kiddie pool on our patio. If all of creation has been subjected to suffering by human sin and is groaning for redemption and is destined to be liberated into glory, then it is fitting and right to care for creation as we wait for that day. And I I admit I was at first a little, I was like, really, a baby duck? I mean, come on. We're going on vacation. We're going to bring a baby baby in the truck with us on vacation. Listen, it's peeping, which we did the entire beep, 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 beep. But I got to say, biblically speaking, I, I, can't, I, can't, I can't say it was wrong. <laughs> and it's awfully cute. So, number five, this text gives us a profound view of glory. How amazing. How amazing and how weighty and, and how, how mind-boggling must this glory be if it makes all of the sufferings of this present age not even worthy of comparison. So in the end, this text leads us to the cross of Jesus Christ. All of creation groans for its brokenness to give way to glory. And at the cross, Jesus himself entered into the groaning. He gave his body and his blood on the tree. And of all the groans of creation, none has been more agonizing than the groans of Christ at the cross. And he was crucified to redeem what human sin spoiled. And he will return to bring his chosen children to glory and to bring all of creation into glory along with them. So come quickly, Lord Jesus. All of creation waits in eager expectation for that day. Let's bow together. Lord God, we praise you for your work of redemption. We praise you, Lord, for how we see your work of redemption as it relates to creation. And as we see the brokenness and the suffering of creation all around us, 
We see a creation that is groaning as in the pains of childbirth, waiting in eager expectation for this day of astounding glory to be realized. I pray, O oh Lord, that we would share that vision as believers. We would have an understanding of the comprehensive view of sin and the broad view of redemption and the exalted view of the lordship of Christ. And I pray, O oh Lord, that we'd have a high view of creation and a profound view of glory. O oh Lord, do your work in us by the power of your Holy Spirit. May we join in creation in longing for that day of glory to be realized. May we have hearts that are poised to praise you for the work of redemption in Christ and to wait in eager expectation for that day of glory to be realized. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.